This is a Federal News Network podcast. There's some new data on efforts to expose risks in the millions of products the government buys annually. The General Services Administration has identified tens of thousands of products that pose concerns. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, what have they discovered here? I presume they're not talking about saccharin in the government coffee rooms. No, they're talking about security risks, and GSA has identified about 200,000 products that pose a concern over the past year through a supply chain risk assessment. That was aimed at unearthing threats in the millions of products that GSA offers to agencies through its marketplace. And those threats, those risks can range from cybersecurity concerns to products that are sold by a company with foreign ownership to to foreign dependencies, which has become a really a household conversation during the pandemic. And GSA analyzed the top 20 percent of companies who supply 80 percent of the products that the agency offers to the federal to federal agencies. That's according to Sonny Hashmi, who's the commissioner of GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. And he said the agency segmented those products into high-risk categories like industrial control systems, HVAC systems, security cameras. Hashmi spoke at an April 7th event hosted by Bloomberg government. Now, keep in mind that just GSA alone uh, offers over 75 million products in our marketplace for the federal government. You can't possibly take a screwdriver to all 75 million products, disassemble them and understand the code and, and look at risks in their firmware and, uh, and, and software. And so this has to be a technique or, or a strategy that involves machine learning, large data analysis, and consistent data collection. And of course, you couldn't find the code problems even if you had a screwdriver. What happens after GSA does identify these potentially risky products? You said about 70,000 of them? 200,000 products identified in a a big portion of the 75 million products that GSA offers. So that gives you a good idea of the scope of the issue and how GSA, what GSA does afterward. They they work with the company. They they reach out to to identify what exactly is in the products. Oftentimes they're they're not reaching out to the manufacturer, but actually a systems integrator or a reseller because th- those are so often the companies who's, who sell to the federal government. And, and then after learning more, Hashmi says GSA can take actions like suppressing some of those products in the marketplace or even t- taking them off of the marketplace. But he said GSA wants to take a risk-based approach to the process because not every product and acquisition is looked at the same. If we're going to buy a generator to, to support a flood victim or like, you know, a FEMA relief effort. The risk inherited in the supplier of that generator and the firmware in that generator is different than if you're going to buy a security camera that's going to be installed in a skiff for monitoring, right? There's, there's two different scenarios. And so we have to apply the lens appropriately to where the greatest risk is, and then we can apply the best effort towards that risk. So it sounds like they're primarily interested in cybersecurity risks in code, but what about physical safety? And you mentioned earlier the country or content origin might be a problem. That sounds like it could be a legal risk for agencies buying it. That's right. There's a number of different risks under this whole supply chain risk management framework that, that GSA is working on. They include those cybersecurity risks, but they also include unauthorized sellers. You don't want unauthorized sellers selling products to agencies. You don't exact if you haven't vetted them, you don't exactly know who they are. And so this is all part of an ongoing process that GSA calls a RoboMod, called that because they use automated processes to remove products from multiple contracts at the same time. They've actually been running these for several years. 
And in January, the agency announced it would pilot a new RoboMod process to kick unauthorized sellers off of multiple award schedules, those big contracts that GSA offers to multiple agencies. And what will happen is GSA will identify products and reach out to contractors, and they'll have 30 days to dispute any discrepancies in what they they find that GSA finds. And if they don't take action in those 30 days, they could be kicked off the multiple award schedule. GSA says this process could extend to other contracts in the future. Right. So when they remove a product, they don't just take it off, but they do have some way of notifying the contractor that this particular line item has been removed? Yeah, at the very least, they're going to reach out, according to this RoboMod process, and 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 ask the contractor for more information and, and ask them for any discrepancies to essentially say, here's what we found. What, what do you have to say here? Got it. And is this going to happen government-wide? That is, what about outside of GSA contracts? Can they rent out their robo? It's unclear if other agencies are going to adopt this specific process, but Hashmi says GSA is working with uh, other agencies like the Department of Defense, another, the, the, the biggest buyer in federal government, along with the Department of Homeland Security, which looks at these types of cyber risks to, to share best practices on this emerging supply chain risk management uh, sort of practice. And, and GSA just last fall established a government-wide community of practice around supply chain risk management. So there's some coalescing around these ideas. There's there's folks talking about it, but it's unclear exactly what the government-wide processes will be. The Federal Acquisition Security Council was just uh, established recently. They're supposed to kind of look at that from a government-wide perspective. So we'll see what they do in terms of adopting these different specific processes. And did Mr. Hashmi give any clue as to how this bot this robotic process to discover products actually works. It sounds like something you may not want to exactly let out because maybe the suppliers could have defenses up against it. Well, from what we know, it's an automated process. It, it uses information that the government has internally in terms of threat intelligence. It also uses open source information. There's a, a number of open source and commercial supply chain products and services that are increasingly being offered out there. And then, as I said, they, they actually reach out to the company and try to get more information if they notice something or if they feel the need to get more information about different components. So it, a, lot, a lot of it is automated from what we know about the RoboMod process. Beyond that, we're, we're, it's, it's a little unclear how, how it actually works. That could come out maybe in some, some lawsuits at some point. We, we don't know, but it'll be interesting to see. And for GSA, then, is this a one-and-done effort, or are they, that is to say, are they finished, or is it something that they're going to be doing repeatedly? No, Hashmi says this is going to be repeated, it's going to be continuous, and they're going to continue looking at things, like I said, the, the RoboMod process pilot is going to eventually move beyond these multiple award schedules. And, and as Hashmi points out, this isn't just a problem that the, the GSA or government has to worry about. It's, it's something that everybody is increasingly concerned about. This is going to be a challenge for the next decade. And it's not just a government problem, right? When we, when we talk about critical infrastructure providers, when we talk about telecoms, when we talk about cloud service providers, each one of them will need to get and develop this intelligence this understanding of their own supply chains. Because ultimately, the bad actors are going to find any vulnerability and wherever the link is the weakest in that entire supply chain, we're going to see vulnerabilities there. And is Congress thinking about this? Maybe something that they could legislate, and especially for the DOD? Yeah, Congress has passed a lot of supply chain security legislation in recent years. Probably the most important was 
the the ban on on Huawei on on federal agencies and contractors using products and services provided by Huawei and other Chinese firms. And and they're continuing to consider legislation in that area. In January, the Senate passed the Supply Chain Security Training Act. It would actually direct GSA to create a supply chain security training program for federal officials with supply chain risk management responsibilities, so acquisition and procurement officials. And, And the bill would also require the Office of Management and Budget to tell agencies how they could adopt and use this training program. So it's clear that Congress, some in Congress, want this supply chain risk management thinking to become embedded in how agencies think about acquisition moving forward. All right. Maybe GSA will get down to 74 million products by the time they're done. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not... my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.